We saw from Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 that there are some things that we conclude, can conclude about God simply from looking at the world around us. We can conclude His eternal nature, His great power and wisdom in the world in which we see, and His position. If He is our Creator, He deserves to be called God. His position as deity. But, whereas looking at the evidence of the world around us can establish theism, and can tell us that there is a God, if we are going to come to know that God, and if we're going to come to know His character and develop a relationship with Him, if we want to present evidence for Christianity, for the God of the Bible, for Jehovah, we're going to have to turn our attention no longer just uh, towards the world around us, but towards the Scripture. Romans 10 and verse 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so we're going to turn our attention towards the witness of Scripture. Throughout the, the New Testament, we have very many uh, narrative sections. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, especially, as well as Acts. And even in some of the epistles, we have the witness of Paul and many others that he references who, who talk about the life of Jesus, who talk about His birth, who talk about the miracles that He performed, and ultimately, who talk about His resurrection and the empty tomb, that He, through those uh, means of evidence, proved that He was the Son of God. And so tonight we're going to examine those witnesses. And as we look at these witnesses, we need to ask ourselves the question, are these witnesses reliable? Can we trust what they say? As they tell us about Jesus' virgin birth, as they tell us about the miracles that they witnessed, and ultimately about His resurrection. Can we trust that what they say is true? And to address this, we need to start at the basics. And so first of all, we need to ask ourselves, what was the intention of these witnesses? As we look through the Scriptures and we look through these narrative accounts, was their intention to truly present to us accurate historical testimony? Or were they simply just trying to, to compose some nice fiction novels for our entertainment? Or, or to uh, expound upon some myths and legends uh, for the basis of some new philosophy, some new religion? Or were they trying to legitimately present the witness of history to us? Well, let's look in John chapter 20 for a moment. John chapter 20, at the very end of John's Gospel, John's going to tell us the purpose for his writing. He's going to tell us his intention here. Here in verse 30 and 31, John writes, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Here John is not composing some fictional account for our entertainment, is he? No, he is showing us His witness, the witness of His disciples here to help us gain our faith. But here, obviously, John's intention is to give us legitimate history, legitimate witness. Here we can read even in John's epistle in 1 John chapter 1, the very first verse there. He says, "...what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, in verse 3, he says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Here John's not saying, we have constructed this through our imagination 
uh, for your entertainment. No, he, he says these are things that we saw, these are things that we heard, these are things that we experienced, that we touched, that we handled. Those are the things that we are declaring to you. And in Second Peter chapter 1, Peter makes a very similar statement. He says in verse 16 that we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. There can be no doubt that Peter and John, and as we're going to see, all all the New Testament writers were intending to reflect eyewitness accounts. They were intending to reflect history here. And even those who were not directly eyewitnesses. Luke, for instance, uh, was not a direct eyewitness, but look in Luke chapter 1. Look what Luke says about the writing uh, of his Gospel. Here in verse 1-4, through he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so Luke doesn't claim himself to have been an eyewitness here, but what does he claim? He says, I have carefully investigated, I have received these eyewitness testimonies passed down. Uh, Probably as Luke was traveling with Paul, he had an opportunity to, to meet many of the apostles, many of those who had lived and seen the works of Jesus, who had seen the resurrected Lord. And he says, I have compiled these evidences so that you can know the truth about this matter. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that we referenced on, on Sunday night, he says that if Christ wasn't raised, if that is not a legitimate historical fact, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses to God. Paul claimed to be a witness. And he says if what we're telling you is not true, if this is all fiction, then we are lying. When we come to the Scriptures, what we're going to see is that there are only two options. Either this is the truth, this is actually what happened, or this is a big, bold-faced lie. These writers didn't beat around the bush. They obviously are intending to be eyewitnesses. And so, yes, that is their intention, but we need to ask ourselves, were they successful at that? Yes, their intention was to give us accurate history, but were they successful in giving us that accurate history? And so, when we look at what we can know of history through archaeology and through other historical documents, does the Bible check out? Does it show in every testable point to be accurate in what it says? First of all, we'll we'll look at the, the testimony of Luke, Luke is one of the best examples to use because he gives us many incidental details, much of the historical background of what he wrote. And so there are many different points in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts where we can test and see if what he is saying here is is legitimately true. Many of the other accounts, especially Paul and his epistles, you're not going to have many areas that you're able to test his historicity. 
Um, because there, there aren't too many historical facts uh, that he includes in the background. But Luke especially, who wrote over a fourth of the New Testament in the book of Luke and Acts, is a prime example here. Sir William Ramsey, who was a foremost authority of the early 20th century on archaeology in Asia Minor, tells us that Luke is a historian of the first rank. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. Uh, William Ramsey again says, In all, Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands without error. And so here, all of these uh, incidental details that Luke is including in his account check out. As we look through archaeology, um, we see that he is being very accurate, very precise in the things that he is saying. What one uh, example is him using the proper titles for governing officials and rulers in different areas, uh, which was actually quite a, a great task to accomplish here because when you went from area to area, there were many different titles uh, for the, the different governing um, bodies or, or uh, governing rulers, and they even changed very quickly over time. And so what we see as we look through archaeology is every single um, ruler uh, or, or term that, that Luke uses for a ruler here checks out with archaeology. Some even that we didn't think did in the past. Scholars were wrong because we dug up something else and it showed that he was correct. We see in Luke chapter 3, he talks about the, the Tetrarchs, Herod, Philip, and Lysanias and, and their respective areas. In Acts 13 and Acts 18, he talks about the proconsuls, Sergius Paulus and Galileo and their respective areas. In Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, he talks about the praetors and lictors, which uh, in, in our translations many times are called chief magistrates or policemen. Um, and yet those Greek terms are what we see in, in archaeology in Philippi are the terms that would have been used for those individuals. In Thessalonica, he talks about the politarchs, or our versions might say city authorities. In Malta as well, we see he talks about the first man or leading man on the island. And in Acts chapter 28, uh, when Paul goes to Rome, it talks about the uh, stratopodarch, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, that's over the prisoners there. And obviously you're not going to see that word in your English translation. Uh, in, in the New King James, it calls it the captain of the guard. And yet all these different words, archaeology has confirmed he's being extremely precise in uh, the titles that he's using here. Not only that, if, if we look in Acts chapter 27 and 28, which is uh, Luke's account of Paul's voyage, we see him getting many incidental details about that voyage, about the sailors, about the ship. Um, and H.J. Holtzman has said that this, this passage, Acts chapter 27 and 28, is one of the most instructive documents for the knowledge of ancient seamanship. Here, Luke is not only being very precise um, in, in all of these historical details, even when he gets down to, to riding on this ship with Paul. Uh, he's, he's looking at everything that the sailors are doing, and he's recording it very precisely for us, uh, so that it's one of the best documents that we have recording ancient seamanship. And so you can see how precise Luke was in everything he said. And yet, while Luke may be one of the, the most prime examples, we see that it's not just Luke. John as well gives us many details uh, 
many different archaeology um, areas that we can confirm in archaeology. He talks about Jacob's well, where, where Jesus met the woman at the well in John 4. Archaeology has unco- uncovered that. Uh, John in John 5 talks about the pool of Bethesda. Uh, where Jesus healed the lame man. He said it had five porticos. Guess what? When we uncovered it, it had five porticos. It was just like he said. Uh, and we see in John 9, the pool of Siloam, where Jesus had a blind man go and wash. We've uncovered that with archaeology as well. And even in John 19, the, the pavement where Jesus appears before Pilate, uh, John tells us in Hebrew is called Gabbatha. Uh, and archaeology has likely found the, the position of, of that place as well. And so all of these places are not just made-up places that, that John, in writing some fiction, is, is coming up with. No, these are places that, that John knew. Um, these are places that, that were written by somebody who was there. And, and we see in every incidental detail uh, that archaeology has, has confirmed these things that we see. And even as we mentioned, even Paul in his epistles, who we're not going to have as much narrative information, uh, we can see that archaeology has confirmed things that he has said as well. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 23, as Paul is writing to the saints in Rome from Corinth, he says, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And guess what? When archaeologists went into Corinth, they uncovered a, a pavement stone on a road there. As this Greek inscription that says, Erastus, curator of public buildings, laid this pavement at his own expense. Uh, and so archaeologists and scholars believe that, that that's talking about the exact same person. Here again we have a confirmation, even in a, in a less narrative uh, format of Paul's writings. And so what we see throughout the entire New Testament is that these writers were extremely precise in the things that they were saying. That they didn't just make up places, they didn't make up titles. No, they were being very careful. We can even see many times when they said they were going up to Jerusalem. Uh, that's because the elevation, Jerusalem was higher. When they went down to some other city, it was because the elevation went down. And every time they talk about that, we see them being very precise in their language. And so the question is, these writers who are extremely precise in these incidental details, do you think in the main point of their writing, they're then going to start making up stuff? You think when they're talking about Jesus, things that, that are the main point of why they're writing all this, then they're, they're not going to be accurate anymore. Now, if they're, if they're uh, extremely accurate in these incidental details, we would assume that they're being accurate in everything that they say. And so, yes, their intention was to write accurate history. Yes, they, as far as we can see, were successful in that. We're writing accurate history. But were they actually who they claimed to be? Was Matthew written by Matthew? Was Mark written by Mark? Was Luke written by Luke? And so on. Maybe these were just clever forgeries by Christians in later centuries um, trying to make sure they were keeping all these accurate details to make it convincing to confirm what they were preaching. Is that a reasonable explanation? But what we see is that scholars uh, date, even the most liberal scholars, date Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the writings of Paul all back into the first century. And they have ample evidence that, that these were written in the time period when these alleged authors at least would have been living. Now, what, what would happen if, if one of you wrote a letter 
and signed Grady Huggins at the bottom, and you started circulating it, because that's what happened with these letters. It was circulated to a bunch of different churches. And so let's say you wrote my name at the bottom of a letter, and you started sending it out to churches all over the year. Well, it's not going to be long until somebody asks me, Grady, did you write this? Especially if it's something of of consequence. Um, It's not going to be long until I, I... Get wind that, that this has been signed by, with my name. And if it's not the case, I'm, I'm going to have a chance to, to either confirm or deny that. And so if we can date these documents back to the time period that these alleged authors lived, uh, then that's going to show us uh, that if, at least if we don't have any uh, record of, of them denying it or there being any controversy over who the writings were, that this was in fact who the writers were. And so what evidence, what proof do we have that these were written in the first century? Well, first of all, we have uh, the earliest manuscripts surviving. And for each of these documents uh, that we're going to be referencing, I haven't included all the New Testament, just the ones um, that we're going to be focusing on, primarily some of the narrative sections. Um, But our our earliest document, uh, the P stands for Papyrus, Papyrus 52. Uh, Here is uh, a fragment of the book of John. And it dates all the way back to 125 A.D. Well, what's interesting about this fragment is it didn't come from Ephesus, where history is going to tell us, as we'll see in a quote here in a moment, John wrote his gospel. Um, It came from Egypt. And so what does that tell us? Well, that, that tells us that by 125 A.D., John's letter had already gained some circulation. And so he must have written it some time before that. We have many other papyruses, some of the earliest of, of these different documents. Matthew in 150 A.D., uh, the entire book of 1 Corinthians is, is found in 200 A.D., fragments of Luke in 175 to 225 A.D., and fragments of Mark, again, in 250 A.D. So all these within about a 200-year span. And these are just the earliest ones. We actually have over 5,000 ancient manuscripts of the Bible, many of them dating very closely after some of these that we've shown here. Um, And actually, there's also a a new discovery by scholar Craig Evans that's in the process of being authenticated. It's a fragment of the book of Mark um, that they believe is back in 80 to 90 A.D., possibly the earliest manuscript that we would would have in existence. Um, And so we see that these are very early um, these surviving manuscripts, uh, many of them gaining circulation by this point in history, obviously must have been written, must have been in existence even prior to that point. And not only do we have the evidence of these 5,000 manuscripts within the, the first 200, 300, 400 years, but we also have many citations of these documents um, by the early church fathers. And, and to cite something, guess what? The, the document has to be in existence. You can't quote it if it's not there. Uh, and, and so obviously when we have uh, these different early church fathers, as they're often known, quoting these documents, these documents have already gained some circulation. And so you can see all of these, even before 200 A.D., quoting all of these documents that, that we are concerned with here tonight. Uh, you see Polycarp was actually very close to the Apostle John, uh, known as a, a disciple of the Apostle John. And Irenaeus, here at the end, was actually the uh, disciple of Polycarp. 
And so Irenaeus, here at the end, where all of this is within two generations of the apostles. These are people who would have known the apostles, who would have known the writers. Uh, and if the apostles, if these prophets, if these writers didn't actually write these documents, these people are going to know it. And yet, guess what? Within the first 400 years uh, after these documents was written, their authorship was not questioned at all. Now, some of the non-Pauline epistles would be the only documents that were questioned, um, and yet over, over time they, they were authenticated. Um, but, but these documents, these narrative documents that we're concerned with tonight, none of them were even questioned that they were written by Matthew, that they were written by Mark, by Luke, by John, and by Paul. Uh, and what, what we see is that the, these citations, there are 36 thousand citations within these first 400 years after the time these documents were written. Uh, Harold Greenlee says these quotations are so extensive that the New Testament could be virtually reconstructed from them without the use of any New Testament manuscripts. That's how much information we have here to show that these documents do actually date back to the time that they claim to. They do date back to these authors who they claim to be written by. And we see, as we mentioned, Irenaeus, who was kind of a, a, the second generation after John here, uh, he says in 180 AD, he testifies that Matthew published his own gospel among the Hebrews in their own tongue when Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and founding the church there. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, himself handed down to us in writing the substance of Peter's preaching, Luke, the follower of Paul, sat down in a book, the gospel preached by his teacher. Then John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned on his breast himself, produced his gospel while he was living in Ephesus at Asia. And so here, one who was a disciple of a disciple of John, very close, uh, is testifying to us the authorship of these documents. So yes, they are authentic documents. And do you think that these people who lived w within 50, 100 years of the apostles are in a better position to tell us who wrote them than scholars today? These people had all the evidence before them. Now, uh, we, uh, whereas there are some who question uh, that the authorship of these documents, most have to admit from all this evidence that yes, Matthew did write Matthew. That, that yes, Mark did write Mark. That, that's usually not the contention uh, of, of liberal scholars today. And so, yes, we have them being very accurate. Yes, we have them being authentic. But could they have all just kind of conspired to make some big hoax? Or could they all have just been deceived at the same time? Well, that's when we get to how many witnesses we have. Uh, could, could they have all been in on this gigantic hoax or could they have all been deceived about this? We need to recognize the Bible is not just one witness. The Bible was not put together at this time. These are, are different historical documents that, that were eventually brought together because they were all recognized as inspired. Um, but these are different witnesses. We have Matthew's witness. In Matthew, we have Mark's witness, or, or ultimately, as Irenaeus told us, the, the witness of Peter through Mark. We have Luke's witness, and we already saw in Luke that he is investigating many different witnesses. Uh, we have John's witness. 
And as we see then through the Gospels, they, they make reference to many other individuals who were there at these different events. And so if these were written early on, just a, a few, 20, 30 years after the time of Christ, then these individuals that they're referencing are still living. And people can ask, well, is, is that what really happened? Here, so we have uh, the, the four witnesses of the Gospels, uh, but they reference so many other witnesses as well. And we see Paul's witness. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. Starting in verse 3, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Here we have Paul's witness, but not only Paul's witness. Now, Paul references over 500 brethren. He, he references, I, I, I believe, about 13 specifically. And the, the readers of this document can, can go and ask these people. He says many of them are still living. You can ask them if they saw it. And so, whereas it might be understandable that, that one or even two witnesses might have been deceived, or that one or two or three witnesses might have conspired together to put together some hoax, is it really plausible that, that 500 witnesses were all deceived by some grand delusion? Is it really possible that 500 witnesses were all in on this? Uh, in some big hoax? No, when we see the quantity of the witnesses, if two or three witnesses is enough to establish something, is not 500 witnesses adequate? And so we have many different witnesses here, but some might say, well, those are all witnesses in the Bible. And these are all Christians, and these are all believers. And obviously they're going to say that. Um, shouldn't we write off what they say because of personal bias? These aren't objective, dispassionate observers here. I want you to think about that for a second. If you witness somebody being raised from the dead, how long do you think you're going to be a dispassionate witness? Do we, do we want witnesses who weren't convinced about what they saw? Is that what we're asking for? Obviously, if these people saw those things, we would assume that they would be convicted. And if for some reason, like some of the Jews, they were not convicted, do you think they would pass on the witness that it actually happened? It's unreasonable to ask for, for non-Christian witnesses, to ask for uh, witnesses that, that were not convinced of what they were saying. And yet, we can even see people like Paul the Apostle, who initially were not favorable towards Christ, who initially would have been a hostile witness. And yet, we see that he was convicted by what he saw, and he changed, and he became uh, a witness for Christ. And so we see even some who, who would have been hostile, turning around and, and being some of the witnesses that we see within Scripture. And yet, even if we do want non-Christian witnesses, guess what? We have them. We have uh, what, what we might call the corroboration of non-Christian witnesses. Those who obviously are not going to try to defend Christ, 
Christ defend his deity, and yet the statements they do make within history ultimately confirm what the apostles and prophets are saying. Uh, They ultimately uh, coincide with one another. One of the most well-known of these witnesses is Josephus. And Josephus, who wrote in the first century, um, here was a Jew who had kind of defected to Rome. And he was a Jewish historian. He was not a Christian, uh, but he gives the history of the Jews. And we see F.F. Bruce tells us that Josephus confirms the biblical references to the Herods, the Roman emperors, Augustus, Tiberius, Claudius, and the procreators of Judea, the high priestly families, Annas, Caiaphas, Ananias, and the rest, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and many other things. We see Josephus talks about the death of Herod that we read about in Acts when he was eaten by worms. All of those things Josephus tells us about. And not only that, we have a passage by Josephus that, that uh, admittedly is a disputed passage, but we'll, we, will, uh, we will talk about that here in just one moment. Here Josephus, in his antiquities, says about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing his, uh, his accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians so called after him has still to this day not disappeared. Here this is a non-Christian witness. Uh, And what many scholars think, because this is kind of out of character for Josephus, many people do dispute this passage. However, even those who dispute this passage uh, admit that even some of the things we see here would have only been an addition by a later Christian editor. Sentences like, he was the Christ, or if, uh, if indeed one ought to call him a man. Um, some who dispute this passage would just simply say those things were, were added in by a Christian editor, and yet the substance of Josephus' witness would have still been uh, um, original with Josephus. Uh, and so, even if we take out some of those statements, like he was the Christ, or if indeed one should call him man, what we see is that Jesus is seen as a, a, a sorcerer, or a miracle worker uh, by many. He, he is one who is crucified under Pilate's rule. Um, and we, we see that his followers continued to follow him after his crucifixion. But not only do we have Josephus, we also have those like Tacitus. Uh, in 55 to 120 A.D. is when he lived. And he talks about Nero trying to relieve guilt from himself for, for the burning of Rome. It said, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, uh, another spelling for Christ here, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. And most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of evil, but even in Rome. And so here Tacitus is is witnessing for us that there was a man named Jesus. 
um, that, or, or rather Christ here, Christus, uh, and that he was crucified under the, the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, uh, and that even after he was crucified, his followers continued to follow him. And so we see uh, many statements like this. Uh, one other that I want to look at just briefly here is uh, that of Julius Africanus in 220 A.D., who actually makes reference to an earlier writing that has since been lost. And he references this man named Thallus, uh, who would have written in 50 to 75 A.D. He says, Thallus, in the third book of his histories, explains away this darkness, and he's talking about the three hours of darkness at Jesus' crucifixion, uh, in context here. He says, he explains away this darkness as an eclipse of the sun, unreasonably as it seems to me. And so here we have Thallus, who's writing around 50 to 75 AD, making reference to the darkness at Jesus' crucifixion and trying to explain it away. And so all of these writers who aren't Christians, we, we'd expect them to try to, to disprove Jesus. Um, and yet, the, the fact that they're trying to disprove him, what does that show? Well, that shows there was something they needed to disprove. Uh, that shows that there was actually something going on here. And we, we can read many others, Lucian, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, all in the 2nd century making reference to Jesus and his followers. Even the Talmud refers to Jesus as a false messiah who practiced sorcery and was the product of an illegitimate birth. Now what does that tell us? Well, they're, they're claiming he's practicing sorcery. That means he's doing something uh, that, that is they think is deceiving these people, some type of miraculous work, right? and that he's the product of an illegitimate birth. There was something suspect about his birth. Um, and so here, even these hostile witnesses are, are ultimately corroborating the evidence that we already have. Uh, and obviously, we would expect those who, who, who truly are convicted by these things uh, to, to be the witnesses that, that we are ultimately are going to go back to within the Scriptures. And so we do have that corroboration. But let's go back... Uh, as, as we finish out here to our witnesses, to the witnesses that we're examining. And let's ask, did they have any motive to lie about these things? Um, what did they gain? If, if this was all a lie, if this was all a big hoax, maybe not everybody uh, was in on the hoax. Maybe it was just the, the closest followers of Jesus and all, the others were just legitimately deceived. But, but let's say it was a hoax and it was these closest followers who were in on it. What motive did they have? Did they gain money by these things that they preached? You know, when we look at the book of Acts in Acts chapter 3, what, what does Peter tell the lame man? He says, silver and gold I do not have. He's telling the truth there. Uh, these were not people who were great, gaining great wealth. In Acts chapter 8, when Simon offers to, to purchase this power of, of uh, giving the Holy Spirit to others, you know, that would be a prime opportunity if that was their motive to get money. Peter would, Peter would say, sure, we can do that. That's not what he said. No, these, these people were not gaining great money or wealth. These are, are poor people. They often didn't have a place to stay. What was their motive? Well, maybe it wasn't money, maybe it was fame, maybe it was recognition. Did they get recognition? What type of recognition? We already read in some of those hostile witnesses how Christians were viewed by the, the Greeks and even the Jews at that time. They were persecuted, they were ridiculed, they were despised, they were following uh, uh, an executed criminal. 
They weren't gaining any type of fame, any type of recognition here. They were gaining persecution and ridicule. Did it give them some opportunity for, for some earthly indulgence, some, some pleasure that they were getting out of this? Well, no, the, their moral standards that they were proclaiming was one of, of strict purity. No, there, there wasn't any worldly reason that these people would continue to, to hold to a lie. And we can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 what it is that they did receive from preaching these things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about his experience in proclaiming the gospel. Verse 23, or rather, we'll, we'll skip down to, to verse 24. It says, Five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brothers. That's what they got from all this preaching. He was stoned. He was beaten. I mean, look at the life of Paul. He had nothing in this earth to gain from continuing to hold to something that he knew was a lie. Now, the only reason you'd hold to this is because it was the truth. And we see the same thing with, with all the New Testament witnesses. As we look through history and through uh, ancient tradition, we see that, that Matthew was supposedly impaled and beheaded in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria behind horses until dead. Luke was hung in Thebes. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Peter was crucified upside down. James was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple. Paul was tortured and beheaded by Emperor Nero in Rome. And Jude was shot multiple times with arrows. That's what these witnesses gained. Are you going to continue to hold to a lie if that's what it gets you? Not at all. The only reason they would continue to hold fast to this is because they were genuinely convicted that it was the truth. That they genuinely were eyewitnesses of these things. And so because of that witness, the last point that we want to make tonight is the effect of these witnesses. What was the result of their witness? When we look at Christianity today, when we look that, that this, this Jew who is executed on a cross is now proclaimed throughout the world. We realize that this was the start of the greatest religious movement the world has ever seen. And how could that be possible? What was the, the hearts of, of the, the Greek, uh, the, the Roman Empire, were, were the hearts of the Jews just such fertile soil for some gospel like this? Not at all. No, what we would expect with a gospel like this of a, of a Jewish peasant who is crucified on a cross is that it would crash and burn. Nobody's going to believe that. Nobody's going to follow that. The Greeks are not favorable toward that. The Jews are not favorable towards that. As we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what do we see about the way that society responded? By and large, in, in verse 22 and 23, it says, For indeed the Jews ask for a sign, and the Greeks search for wisdom, but we... Preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. 
To the Jews, this was a, a lowly Galilean Jew with no formal education who condemned all the human traditions of the religious leadership and defied everything they expected the Messiah to be. He was a friend to tax collectors and sinners and he was ultimately crucified on a cross uh, an accursed death. And that's supposed to be the Messiah? That's not what the Jews were expecting. That's not what the Jews wanted to hear. What about the Greeks? To the Greeks, a Jewish peasant, supposedly the son of the only true God, all these other pagan gods are are, are not um, legitimate gods, and despite his deity, he died uh, in a weak way, uh, uh, the lowest possible death on a cross. That's nothing compared to our our pagan gods and their great feats, their legendary uh, accomplishments. You think the Greeks were favorable toward a gospel like this? Then how did it spread? How did the gospel create such a great movement, even under persecution? Because God was behind it. It's because it had the truth behind it. Because these individuals were convicted of what they said. Because the Holy Spirit was, was showing forth miracles to confirm the things that they were preaching. It's the only explanation for the effect that this witness had. Is that it was, in fact, true. Meaning, you see, when we look at the Bible, if it's not legitimate history, if these witnesses are not reliable and they're not true, where did they come from? And is that a more likely possibility? Or a less likely possibility? Brethren, I think we can see clearly that these are reliable documents we hold within our hands. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That He came down to earth. He died so that we could be saved. And He was resurrected. He conquered death so that you and I can conquer death too. If you recognize that Jesus is Lord, won't you confess that? Won't you confess Him as the Lord of your life? Won't you submit to Him by bearing the old man of sin and baptism? being raised to walk in newness of life, repenting. You're no longer going to live that way anymore. The old man of sin is buried and gone from now on. You're not living for yourself. You're living for King Jesus. Is there anyone here who needs to make that change? Who needs to make that commitment? If you recognize that that you need to commit your life to the Lord, that you may need to make some public change, we ask that you will please make that known by coming to the front as we stand and sit.